Welcome to Soundstage Insider, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the film and television industry. We're bringing you the visionary directors and producers, the talented cinematographers, editors, sound designers, and more who really make the magic happen. We delve deep into their stories, their struggles, and their triumphs. So let's go beyond the red carpet and discover a fascinating world of behind-the-scenes talent. Hello there, welcome to the Soundstage Insider podcast. My name's Jamie, I'm your host, and today we are talking about producers. What does a producer do? How do you become a producer? What's it like to fire someone? One of the many questions I ask, and one of the many questions that are answered by today's extraordinary guest, Jay Miles Dale, who you're about to hear a lot more from. Here's his bio. Jay Miles Dale is a highly accomplished film and television producer with a remarkable career spanning over several decades. His passion for film and television began at an early age, leading him to pursue a career that would allow him to bring stories to life on both the big and small screens. Dale's journey in the industry started as a production assistant, which soon progressed to various roles within the filmmaking process. Through these experiences, he honed his skills, learned the intricacies of the industry, and developed a keen eye for detail and collaboration. This hands-on approach to learning became the foundation for his success as a producer. One of Dale's most notable projects was the critically acclaimed film The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro. The film's immense success, including winning the Academy Award for Best Picture, catapulted Dale's career to new heights. It showcased his ability to bring together a talented team and create a visually stunning and emotionally impactful cinematic experience. Dale has been involved in a diverse range of projects that demonstrate his versatility as a producer, from the visually stunning Scott Pilgrim vs. The World to the chilling horror film Mama and the gripping TV series The Strain, he's consistently pushed boundaries and delivered captivating content to audiences around the world. Dale has recently ventured into new territory as creative director of immersive Disney animation. I started the interview by asking Miles to talk about his early career. Well, um, I was sort of brought up in the business. My father was a jazz musician who became a musical director, and we moved from Toronto to Los Angeles at the age of eight. He was working on the Smothers Brothers show and some other TV variety shows, um, Andy Williams, and then eventually ended up as the musical director on the Sonny and Cher show. So I kind of grew up in in that world and music world and uh, the TV world. And, you know, I, I kind of enjoyed all the dynamic, crazy personalities that, you know, would come around the house and we would go to the studios. Um, we were, my brother and I, now very popular with network security. We were, you know, curious, uh, bordering, kind of bordering well into mischievous. <laughs> so we were we were all over the place and and um so yeah we we grew up in that and and then I did a couple years of university and then one summer there was a TV show that came around called Bizarre and I was looking for a summer job and and I, I was a PA on that show and I I didn't go back to school actually I did two years I was twenty and 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 I liked it I didn't want to be in school forever didn't have the patience for it even though I was not a bad student. And so I got into that and, and I enjoyed it. I was in TV variety for 
a few years, did some award shows and some live to tape stuff. Um, I was a production coordinator, then, then I was a production manager. And then I guess when I was about 25, I got my first producing job on a, on a show called um, True Confessions, was it, which was a one show a day anthology, uh, different location, different cast every day, five a week. I think it was $40,000 an episode or something. It was a real boot camp. But, you know, I wanted to do it and and uh, there were, you know, lots of hours in the day when you're 24 years old. And also there was a producer by the name of Alan Landsberg that you may have heard of. He was big back in the 70s and 80s, especially. And he produced a show called That's Incredible, a number of other shows. And I really enjoyed him as a mentor. Uh, he sort of uh, it was the first one to really drill into my head that a producer should do every job and even he or she can't do every job um, the importance of understanding the granular part of every job so that you could you know when you're forced to make decisions and value judgments and and break a tie and priorities or where to spend money you would know the value you know do you need that other shot in the editing room that close-up or can you live without it so should you stop um do you need that great wig or can you settle for a, a slightly crappier wig so he encouraged me to do that. And I took it to heart and, and I, I started getting nosy with everybody at that point um, in the departments that hang around trailers and editing rooms and everything else, just trying to, you know, learn all these things that I needed to know. And so um, that was the start for me. Uh, um, and, and I, you know, I was grateful to have those kinds of mentors. So do you think that one show a day project informed your growth as a producer and taught you the things that you needed to learn in such a condensed period of time? I mean, it was an insane, it was almost like a prank being offered this thing when, when someone says, we're going to do this <laughs> and it's 40,000 an episode and they say, can you do it? And you have no choice but to say yes because you're yeah. being offered your first producing job. So it was like, yes, of course we could do it because you know, even if you died trying or failed miserably, it was a great opportunity, but yeah, we did it. It was, it was, it was hard. And you know, I can't say the show was particularly great, but it was okay. You know, and most more than anything, uh, I learned a lot. And, you know, I think in some cases you learn what not to do as, as much as what to do. And if you come from, you know, production management, as I did, you know, that, that first impulse is always to say no. And the importance, because everybody's asking for everything and they only see their own department, you know, I mean, set design only sees set design and costumes only sees costumes. And they don't realize that it's a great big world and everybody has to have theirs. But I think the important thing that I learned in those times is, is when to say yes. And how the thing, the thing to do is to be able to say yes with knowledge and that's you know those first few shows that i did and friday the 13th after that for paramount that was kind of the next big show that i did in my late 20s as a line producer it was kind of the same thing there were very high aspirations um uh but but it wasn't you know really extravagantly funded and so you just learn to make those kinds of decisions based on what you you know your ever-growing uh, knowledge base so everything felt a bit easy after that compared to the one show a day, right? <laughs> you know what, Jamie? It's never easy. If it's no. <laughs> easy, probably on the wrong show or it's not going to sure. be very good, that may be the great myth. Even to say that it's easier with money, you know, the dreams and hopes of uh, the directors are just that much bigger. So um, right. yeah. I can't remember raised. a lot of easy ones and the ones that may have been easy are forgettable. So um, you've alluded to the responsibilities of a producer in what you've previously said, but how would you define the role of a producer? Because it's a little amorphous for us, not 
in that world? You know, it really depends. I mean, there are many kinds of producers. There are, you know, um, money producers and line producers. There are creative producers. There are writer producers. There are director producers. There are talent producers who are attached to either an actor or a director. So, you know, there are many different kinds. And sometimes it takes, you know, more than one. Guillermo and I like it because basically on the movies that he directs, he and I are the only producers and we have no one else to answer to, uh, no one else to delegate to really, but really keeps the the, the circle of information and, and trust, you know, tight. So it, it depends. And, uh, you know, what I actually like to say for my part is that I, you know, given that I've had it various ways with various directors, various studios, various financial considerations, you kind of be what you need to be on a given show. So if you have a first time director who, you know, has no experience and maybe, you know, clueless to the, the bigger, you know, way of making movies, you, you've got to probably take that person's hand a little more. If you've got a more experienced director who can articulate the vision like Guillermo or like an Edgar Wright, you have to do a little less. And you, you know, you have to make sure the vision gets out there and it's understood. And of course, that there's, you know, enough resources and that the resources are being properly directed. If you have an actor who's difficult, you may spend your time managing that actor. So it's kind of like, um, I liken it to the movie Zelig, the Woody Allen movie, where he just became whoever he needed to be in a scene. So, you know, you can be many things, but what you have to do is is be the thing that the movie needs you to be. And sometimes that's more, sometimes that's less. I mean, ideally, I would have to do not much because I would have a great director, a happy cast, a good script, a willing and understanding studio, a great crew who are communicating properly and good weather. All of those things being uh, real, uh, I don't have to do much, but it's not often that all of that happens. So, you know, you just have to fill in the blanks and lead and course correct where possible and be a second opinion and be a shoulder to cry on and be, you know, sometimes stern to somebody who's misdirected. Um, but really and truly, it's it, it changes on every film. And even within a project, are you a different kind of a producer to different people or at different phases of the production? Or are you that one role per gig? No, no. I mean, again, I think what happens is that, I, you know, I liken every movie to a Petri dish where it's a it's kind of a chemistry project every time because, and we've been very fortunate because we have a lot of the same people we've worked with for 20 or more years. And so the shorthand is very well established with our our group, the group that I regularly work with. But sometimes when you're working with new people, it's a bunch of different personalities and that all mixes into something. And, you know, everybody kind of has to get along and respect each other, understand, communicate. So, you know, oftentimes, you know, if I have a costume designer who's a little this way or a production designer who's a little that way or a studio executive who needs more advocacy because maybe they came from finance and not production and they don't understand some of the nuances of production, you just sort of deal with it so uh, the, the, sure there'll be movies where i'm where i'm i'm have to do nothing with with certain departments and really focus all my en- energy or or time on on other departments but you know mostly it's a it's a you just try and create an atmosphere of trust and good communication everyone knows what you're doing you've got good material to hold on to and that's the inspiration that everyone has hopefully a good leader in the director some proper resources. And, you know, after a while you can smell any one of those things out that's not happening and you can sort of see the signs and you can look around a corner 
and and maybe get ahead of of things like that. But um, that just comes with experience. And like I said, ideally, if everyone was doing their thing and I didn't have to do much, that's a great day for me. But you know, those days are rare. So, for those listening who might be interested in being a producer, what character traits or skills make for a good producer? Would you say what what would they need to recognize in themselves? Well, I certainly think diplomacy is important because oftentimes you're you're in a room with people with different agendas. So um, I think you know someone said, "What are the best courses to take in in college for to be a producer?" And I said, "Psychology." <laughs> Uh, and anything to do with diplomacy and, you know, the ability to sort of um, uh, settle problems, because ultimately what you are is a problem solver. As I said, if there's no problems, it's an easy day for me. You know, I can watch the game. But if there are uh, problems, disagreements, uh, misunderstandings, any of those things, you know, you've got to get in there and solve it. So you, you want to be that kind of a person. And, and that, I think, is important to the temperament of any producer compassion where you need it, the ability to temper your um, uh, approach to a situation, because sometimes you have to take a really stern approach. Remember, very creative, dynamic, passionate, artistic personalities in this business. And so, you know, talking different people uh, off different ledges, um, you know, that's something that is an acquired taste, you know. So, um, you know, dealing with artists, you want to bring the best out of them. You know, you don't want to shut them down or shoot them down or scold them or anything else. You want to sort of get to their, you know, the, the artistic beauty of what they do, whether that be an actor, a designer, a director. Uh, uh, so so oftentimes it's, you know, being inspirational. You know, you got to have that that pep talk about how great it could be if we just did X. So, I, you know, I, I think that there's, a number of, of skills that are important. I mean, math is a good one for some of us. Yeah. Uh, but really, I think just being able to bring people together and lead kind of like a camp counselor is the most valuable, you know, some level of leadership because you're not in the background, right? You're you're never really... I mean, some producers are, I guess there's there are other producers who I'll call rights producers who just got the rights to something and then went and found some people who could make it. And, and maybe... the. the those people like they don't have the same skill sets, but they're smart enough to, you know, get the right book or or uh, adapt something. So, you know, maybe those people wouldn't need these skills. But for me, you know, when you're at the center of the storm, you want to radiate calm, but have it, you know, come from a position of confidence where, you know, you're you're you know you're feeling good about the operation, and if we just did these little tweaks, it might be a little bit better. So, you know, I I would say psychology, diplomacy, compassion. And, you know, an even temperament when you can. Well, I was going to ask this later, but as we're talking about this, what is your responsibility when things aren't going right? Maybe an actor's not right for a role. Maybe something's people having some interpersonal issues. Is that your responsibility to step in there and, and sort that out? And if things get to a point where maybe someone has to be let go, like, is that, I know it's not a fun thing to talk about, but... Is that part of your responsibility too? And if so, how do you how do you approach that? Sure. Yeah, of course it is. When things when things go wrong, I'm on the hot seat. You know, when six weeks into shooting Nightmare Alley, COVID hit and we had to scramble for the hills and I had all those great actors who had a whole bunch of projects lined up, you know, behind us 
you know, I had to get in there, you know, with all the agents and talk to everybody and say, okay, how do we put it together? When do we put it back together? Under what circumstances are, are we going to put it back together? A lot of people had the summer of 2020 with their feet up. And for me, I had never been busier because I was having to talk to, you know, it was what I call producer med school. You know, I had to learn all this crazy stuff about COVID and what to do and protocols and, 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 you know, how we would need to come back safely, what it would cost. So, you know, any, any problem that comes around will usually land on my desk. Yeah. Sometimes it'll be with actors. Sometimes it'll be with directors, sometimes studio executives, sometimes just somebody on the crew, you know, these days in the days of HR, it seems that now if you look at someone funny, um, people take offense. And, and so, uh, sometimes it was just quelling people's feelings about things, you know, or talking to someone who's been misunderstood. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a den mother to the, um, den father to the, um, you know, the cast, the crew, the studio. And if there's something wrong, uh, I will hear about it, whether it's from the person who is feeling wronged or the person who did the wrong or something from a hotline somebody doesn't like the craft service, you know, and, and, and you'll have to do something about it. So yeah, I, again, you are a problem solver, solver, but if you're solution oriented and if you solve some things in the past, um, you learn how to do it and you learn how to do it with hopefully making people feeling good when they leave. I mean, when I, and I've had to fire people on many occasions, whether it's just um, bad chemistry in the organization or whether it's the director not feeling confident that that person can do the job or uh, somebody said something really off base to somebody, you know, you really, I, I, I've always tried to make them understand why we had to let them go, how they might've treated it uh, differently or how they might've behaved differently or how they can kind of grow from this moment. And I've, I've, I always make a point um, and look, it doesn't happen that often, maybe one every three or four shows, but having them walk out feeling like at least it's been explained to them and maybe, they can reflect on their own performance or their own behavior and, and, and learn a little from it. You know, I don't, I don't want it to be a meaningless um, experience because uh, I've been fired and it doesn't feel good. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a, a low feeling and, and, and you want to, you know, sort of um, uh, uh, be careful with people's self-esteem, um, you know, knowing that it's um, in, in, in our business with, with artists, particularly, you know, um, those people are sensitive and and maybe a little fragile, but usually pretty brilliant if we're working with them. So I'm I'm careful to do that. Yeah, love that. Well, let's now shift to a very successful creative partnership that you have with Guillermo del Toro. You won an Oscar together, <laughs> which is doesn't get more successful than that. So, yeah. can you talk about the first time you guys worked together and what that was like, and and what your relationship is like in the creative environment of a film set? Sure. Well, we, um, I had produced Scott Pilgrim versus the world with Edgar Wright. And in 2011, Guillermo was coming to Toronto to direct Pacific Rim. But at the same time, Universal had asked him to um, produce Mama with Andy Muschietti, a first time director. And he had his sister, Barb, uh, my dear friend, uh, who was his producer, but she'd never produced anything more than commercials and um so universal knew me because i had done i don't know five movies for them at that point and um edgar introduced me to guillermo 
who, and I said, look, why don't we do, we'll do Mama in Toronto. We'll do it at the same studio. You'll be right down the hall. So if you need to jump in, if I need you for anything, we'll take care of that. And that's what we did. And it was very successful because he was busy on Pac Rim and Mama was great. And, you know, Andy and Barbara were great. And the cast was great. Jessica Chastain was just becoming a star and she was fantastic. And it was a really fun time and the movie was successful. So the strain came around and Guillermo, uh, the TV show, and Guillermo said, I'm producing the pilot. Would you, uh, I'm directing the pilot uh, based on the books I wrote. Um, would you like to produce it with me? For me and I hadn't been in television for a little while like um, I would say like I don't know 15 years but the quality of television had really um, grown you know and I loved the material and and so I said yes and the pilot turned into the first season which turned into four seasons which turned into me directing a whole bunch of the shows and and kind of being running it on the ground while Carlton Cuse was running it, you know, in the writer's room and in, and in post. So, so that was great. And then in between the third and the fourth season, Guillermo asked me if I wanted to do Shape of Water. And we came up with a really inventive way to do that because it was in the middle of seasons of The Strain. It was Fox, the same studio, and we shot in our stages with our crew. And it was very much, you know, I've compared it to much as, as Alfred Hitchcock did Psycho in between seasons of, of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Guillermo being a big Hitchcock fan, I said, hey, bro, this is your Psycho, man. We're doing it <laughs> with our TV crew and guns blazing. And, you know, we did 58 days for under 20 million bucks and that felt like a real achievement. And then, of course, it felt like a real achievement when we were standing up on that stage together looking out at all those people thinking, geez, what the hell are we doing here? <laughs> um, uh, surpassing our dreams here on uh, on one night in March. And then, you know, we continued. We produced a couple more films, Antlers and Scary Stories, and then Nightmare Alley. And we've just got a great flow together. He's a wonderful man. He uh, He's, you know, a brilliant visualist and designer. He conveys his ideas with great specificity, so you're not guessing at anything and it's just been great for us you know he 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 knows that i know how he wants it and you know i can look around corners for him and it's just been you know a wonderful partnership i'm very grateful to have met him i mean it's kind of a dream come true and you know i know there are a lot of people who would want to be in my shoes for that reason alone and i say i'm keeping my shoes <laughs> I don't blame you. Um, I mean, speaking of how he conveys his concepts and his ideas for for projects, yeah. I mean, the, on paper, the shape of the water seems like a tough sell, right? <laughs> but clearly, he had a good way of delivering that to you, presenting the concept to you, and obviously, you know, is going to deliver something incredible. But the concept is a little challenging, yeah, right? No, I, I mean, I said when you walk in and you pitch a story about a love story between a mute cleaning lady and and a fish um you do not expect a bidding war but you know fortunately i think you know on an allegorical level and certainly on a metaphorical level with things that were going on in 2016 you know with some of the changes in american politics and um you know outsiders who were being minimalized and people not having agency or having their voices heard i think Guillermo felt really compelled to do this. You know, he had been wanting to do uh, that film you know, ever since he saw Creature from the Black Lagoon when he was six years old. And he mm. thought it was a bummer that the creature and the girl didn't get together. He, you know, has sought to right that cinematic wrong. And um, 
I think that Searchlight being, you know, a very filmmaker friendly studio saw his work and saw what this could be and got behind it. So uh, I think, look, he's pretty brilliant storyteller. And now, you know, as we can see, having adapted Pinocchio in the beautiful way that he did. And then now, you know, he's we're working on an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that we're going to start shooting early next year. You know, he can find new things in these old things. And he's, you know, um, a prolific reader. Uh, he knows more about movies than anybody I know. Um, so, you know, he's got this great context and base of knowledge for knowing, you know, what will move people and how he can take those things and, and, and move them. And, you know, I think he's just getting better and better at that. Yeah. Well, you've got clearly a, a vision and a knack of working with, you know, hugely creative and talented people as well. That must be something, you know, a string to your bow to be able to see something in other people. Obviously, Edgar Wright, you've mentioned a couple of times. I'm a big fan of Edgar Wright. How does that relationship differ working with some? I mean, stylistically, obviously, very different and different people. But how does that uh, manifest day to day, the differences between working with someone like Guillermo and someone like Edgar? Well, again, I think in, in, you know, my body of experience and, and to go back, I'll say on Friday the 13th, when I was, I guess, maybe 29, one of the directors said to me, oh, you should direct something. And I said, oh man, that, that's so nice of you to say that you think that I have the skill set to be a director. I'm, I'm really kind of honored. He goes, no, you need director empathy because you're telling me that we need to stop now and I don't have the scene and you won't know it until you're in an editing room getting your ass burned by not having the shot that you need to cut into this. And I thought, okay, well, that's took the wind out of my sails a little bit, but I thought, yeah, let's do that. And I went and did a bunch of directing only really so that I could be a better producer. Again, to go back to the Alan Landsberg thing to say, do all jobs. Well, certainly being a director would be a big part of that, you know, so you could understand all those things that you need, the director's toolkit. So when they come asking for cranes and steady cams and this and that, you can understand visual styles and aspect ratios. And then also, you know, on the TV shows that I was doing, you know, with the cast, instead of having somebody come in for three weeks who they've never met before, and maybe that person hasn't seen all the shows and don't know where their character has been, you know, you've seen everything. If you're a producer on the show, I know everything from episode one to episode everything. So, so I really took it on myself to become a better director so that I could be a better producer for these directors. And, you know, what I found myself doing was a lot of second unit on these films where it saved some time and saved shooting days, but they knew that they could trust me and that, you know, they knew that I knew my lenses and everything else. So with each director knowing that 12 hours never so never pass so quickly as when you are directing because the the time goes quickly you try and sort of get in their minds and say okay what what's important to you like with edgar music was so critically important everything was driven by music and the music had to be perfect and it'd be cut to the music and shot to the music and you know the music is the heartbeat of scott pilgrim you know all the way so yeah. you you and also he's a very high energy guy but again he tells you exactly what you need and he won't kind of waver off it which is good i mean it's good when it's good when it's bad you get the second opinion but rarely bad so again it, it just depends on you know the director you're dealing with i mean scott cooper also brilliant had his own uh style you know um and and a number of others that i've worked with who have been 
really, you know, again, once you've, once you've accumulated a body of experience that you've seen the different types of directors, you can kind of know what you're getting into pretty quickly and, and be, be able to sort of pin their personality, their working style and their needs, and then just adapt to that. And it's, it's so really, it's, it's relatively simple, which is don't impose yourself on the director, support the director so that they know they're supported so that when you come with advice or comments or anything else, it's not, you know, it's in a trust relationship. And that's what I find the most critically important thing is no matter how they do it, get to a position of trust with the director so that you can have a meaningful exchange, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, flipping that around a little bit, are there things that you wish directors or other people on set knew about what you did that would help you do your role better? You know, I will sometimes explain to them what the thing, you know, like what I will often say to whether it's costumes or, or, or production design or sometimes a director, I said, look, we can do anything that we want to do, but we can't always do everything that we want to do and that we just have to prioritize. You know, the fact is there's only so much money. And so you got to be cognizant of that. There's only so much time. Uh, there's only so much time in a day. We can't shoot for 14 and 15 hours where people are going to be wiped off their feet. So again, it's a little bit, a little bit babysitter a little bit supporter a a little bit confidant and and i think ultimately i don't really need them to understand what i do i just need them to trust me hopefully like me listen to me uh because most of what i say is going to make some sense and i think that they do understand because when there's a problem they're at my door so (laughs) they know that i'm going to be a guy who's going to help them solve their problems so um, look, I think producers sometimes get a bad rap, that cliche producer who's, you know, um, you know, beating his chest or throwing his bagel at you. Um, and it's not, it's just not true anymore. And it's certainly not the good ones certainly don't do that anymore. So for me, it's just building like a great, happy team, a, a wonderful, productive set where everyone respects one another, latching onto some great material putting some great actors together and, and, and then and then you watch it happen. And if you do it all that way, probably it will happen. And so so to me, I don't need people to understand it. I just need to to be able to build that happy team of, of people who are hopefully not misfits and um or maybe just just crazy enough to be brilliant and you know keep them on track. Well it's funny that's been somewhat of a running theme with these episodes recently that I've interviewed cinematographers and directors and, you know, showrunners, and they've all said their priority was finding a great team and working with team members and people that they like and want to spend time with and they can trust. And and that almost supersedes their skill, you know, at the, given whatever it was. So that's such an interesting thing to hear from your perspective, too. Well, I would say that in, in a way, ability will range sort of 15 to 20 percent on the group of people that we're going to hire for certain jobs and attitude can range a hundred percent. So you right. really need to to balance those two things and say, look, I know you can do it. I've seen your work. I've talked to people about it, but do I want to put up with crazy or what I understand to be profligate spending 
or inability to communicate people with people, I'd prefer not. You know, I'd prefer yeah. to find someone who's in the same ability range and excels at all those other things. So that's why I said, look, I mean, L Louis Sakara, our costume designer on many things, including Shape of Water and Nightmare Alley. I've known Lewis for 30 years since he was a PA and I was a uh, a baby PM. Uh, Tamara Deverell, who's doing Frankenstein, did Nightmare Alley 20 years, you know, um, since uh, Blizzard. So I think once you find people you like and, and you're simpatico, you've got a shorthand, I think you do everything you can to hold on to them. I understand the notion of mixing it up every time and trying to find that magic recipe that's going to be like the unicorn uh, um, uh, team, but I, I, I prefer the other, uh, and and I think that they do too because it makes for a very predictable, communicative uh, working relationship. So we, we, we've really kind of done that over the last many years. Let's switch gears a little, and I want to talk to you about the immersive Disney animation uh, that you're working on. You were creative director of that. Can you tell us what that is <laughs> exactly? Sure. Well, it's um, it started with um, you know immersive technology, which basically can be many things in the in the VR world. You know, it's VR, AR, everything. I think the whole alphabet with R behind it, uh, different realities. Immersive Van Gogh and some of this projection mapping took it away from the headset and into, you know, a 360 degree space. So whether it was in a rocky cave in southern Italy or, you know, uh, a square room, uh, this was kind of fascinating to me. You know, being a fan of the communal experience of having people go to theaters to be laugh together, cry together, get scared together. I, I like that more than I like people staying home watching TV. And so I was introduced to Corey Ross, who was the uh, is the head uh, founder of Lighthouse Immersive, who put on Immersive Van Gogh, the you know the biggest show in the world. Um, I think they sold about five million tickets through the pandemic in North America. And I was fascinated by this because he came to me and he said, "How would you do uh, a narrative show?" He had done some of the um, visual artists. He had done Klimt and Frida Kahlo, and he was looking to get out of painters, basically, uh, you know, which are still images and even though they moved them with the Ken Burns effect and some layers and everything else. And that was a very contemplative show, but it was great, you know, emotional at times. And, and but you're standing in a giant 10,000 square foot gallery with, you know, 360 degrees around you and the floors and everything else. So he asked me what I thought the best uh, ideas were for narrative. And I said, well, to me, it would all start and end at Disney with everything that they've gotten, everything that they control. And I think he had been, he had tried to get in there, but I had made a few movies for Searchlight, which were, um, well, at the time we started this discussion about a year and a little bit ago were, had been acquired by Disney in the Fox deal. And we went to them and because this is the hundredth anniversary of the company, they did want to do something, which we were really pleased about. A uh, hundred years of Walt Disney animation because it all began with animation with Mickey Mouse and everything else. So they they said they wanted to do an immersive show that showed the hundred years of work, honored the animators and all the artists and innovators, performers, composers, singers, actors who had been in it. 
So we we started working on a show to go into all the lighthouse galleries around the country and around the world. That was that. And it was not only going to be a projection show, but it was also going to be kind of an exhibition and an installation where we have tables where kids learn to draw their favorite Disney characters. And up on the walls are giant screens of pencil sketches from the original animators with the final work right next to it. So you can see what you're doing with your pencil and how that can manifest into a finished product. So Hmm. not only is it telling you a lot about the process, but it's maybe inspiring you if you're an artist. And so, you know, we added things like that, the art of animation, background, storyboards, the multiplane camera, which is a very famous invention. Then we've got maquettes and statues and things like that, you know, for photo ops. So that first part of it that you walk through, kind of almost like an art gallery, but it's also performative, really shows you how animation was made and who made it from the beginning. You know, the first color animation, the first talkie animation, multiplane, all those things, you know, because D- Disney were very, very innovative in that way. And then when you go into the show, you've got this immersive experience of about 53 minutes, which not only is projected 360 degrees around you, but we've also got, you know, moving floors. You know, we use this LIDAR technology where when you walk through the casita during, we know, talk about Bruno, the flowers all spread around you, or when Tinkerbell's there, the pixie dust all spring. So there's some technology, these interactive bracelets that, that light up in the colors of the show, bubbles that come out, you know, during uh, under the sea. So, you know, we've, we've really also tried to make it very tactile. So it's kind of like we're going one step past a movie theater and saying, we're going to show you all of these characters and stories and songs that you love, but we're going to do it uh, where you can pretend you're in a theater, but you can get up and walk around. Uh, you can make the floors move. You can you can poke in the bubble. So it's been pretty gratifying to see families go because, of course, there's no better multi-generational experience than Disney. I mean, we all, you, me, whoever's tapping this phone, have been affected by, you know, something from Disney in our childhood or our adolescence. So, you know, I can go with my mom and my kids and we've all got something different there to sort of, you know, bring back the joy of childhood. So to see people experience, you know, by the hundreds together with little kids running around, you know, poking bubbles and wondering about these magic floors has been really incredible. I mean, I've, I was lucky enough to be able to go to Disneyland when I was a kid, when we lived in California when I was nine or 10. And then to be able to take my kids to the park in Florida and sort of relive that experience through their eyes and have that joy all over again, you know, now we can take that to you know, all the cities around North America and various places in the world where, you know, there are no Disney parks and people can get a little bit of that magic. So it's been really um, gratifying for me, like I said, to be able to experience this new technology and and develop a new medium not that long after its birth. What was Disney like as a creative partner on this? Because obviously they bring their you know, the past and the present, all their technology. I was speaking to a director of The Mandalorian. They had all that in the volume, you know. Volume, yeah. Were they bringing some of that with them to the production of this or how did that work? Well, they were great. I mean, um, the Disney creative legacy team uh, were amazing collaborators. In fact, we got our, we we were in the middle of doing a cut and we got our first cut from their uh, visual effects editor, uh, Darren Holland, which was amazing. It's like, wow, this is great. This is kind of along the lines of what, we were doing, but they jumped right in. Great partners. Look, 
it's an embarrassment of riches, the the yeah. material that they have, you know, 61 features and all those shorts over all those years. So where do you even start? So, you know, we came down to figuring out how we could do a narrative, you know, uh, a, a Disney movie from pieces of Disney movies where the narrative felt kind of the same. You know, you you meet your young heroes and they meet their challenges. And just when it looks like it's a disaster, they pull it out and there's a great happy ending and they've learned something and they've followed their dreams and and their wishes have, have, have come true um, with some hardship along the way. So we built a 14 song arc that did that either through in context songs or with some montages. And that was a great pleasure. And they were amazing. And they gave us all kinds of materials. They also gave us you know, I really didn't know this, but they have an archive called the Disney Animation uh, Research Library. And we were given access to that. And oh my God, it was amazing. Uh, they had so many things from the past and all of these hmm. pencil sketches and, and animation cells and maquettes and drawings. And so we actually decided to make our gallery, we patterned it after, we call it the Disney Vault. And when you walk into it, it looks like an Indiana Jones warehouse that goes on forever with all of your favorite kind of tokens and characters and everything else. So it was just a great collaboration with them. You know, look, they usually do everything themselves. They don't partner with many people. You know, that Disney magic is kind of elusive. So we were really kind of honored to do this, but obviously there's a there's a large burden of responsibility to get it right. So they were great with us all throughout and and I, I think they're very happy with the show. And I think they also think that Walt from the early days was an innovator with all these things that he did first in his medium and that they were pleased to be involved in a level of innovation that can bring a new kind of entertainment to their um, audience. And the difference between this and something like AR or VR is that it is a shared experience, right? It's a communal experience. That's the fundamental difference between just popping on a headset and having something, experiencing something on your own. Yeah, I think people make an argument that that the, the headset thing is communal because you're doing it with somewhere someone else who may be halfway around the world. You know, I'm a little more old school and tactile than that, and and I love I love to have people together, especially after the pandemic. You know, it was so satisfying to see people be able to come out and actually just hang out together and and um, see their kids run around and everything else. So you know, I get the VR, and it's all very thrilling. I went and saw. Uh, in your uh, uh, show at LACMA, uh, Carne E Arena, that's about the, the the smuggling of Mexican immigrants. And boy, man, you felt like you were out there in the desert with the coyotes and stuff. And it really moved me. And it sort of told me, told me, landed for me how how big that could be. But you know, this is not just one person alone in a warehouse. This is two hundred people laughing and clapping and 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 you know share joy together which is is a lot of fun for me having had to give some of that up with theaters closing a couple years ago and and having a hard time coming back to be perfectly honest yeah so this is called the immersive disney animation experience is that correct it's changed it was disney animation immersive experience and i think it's now um immersive disney animation we we okay Gotcha. We, we knew everyone knew it was going to be an experience anyway, and so we didn't want to. Right. <laughs> and when does that open? We're, and it's starting, it's touring, right? So it's, it's going around. It's open in um, about uh, at least 10 cities across North America, Toronto, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Memphis, Denver, uh, Columbus, and, and uh, Boston, a few others, uh, Las Vegas. 
and we'll be opening uh, a few more shows uh, over the next little while. And we just opened our first international show in Tokyo, and I think we've had 150,000 people through there in the first um, six weeks, which is pretty amazing. So uh, it'll be around the world, but you know, by the end of the year. Amazing. Now, this is a very broad, non-specific question, but is Hollywood as cutthroat as people say it is? Well, I, I think it can be, Jamie. And I think the the secret to comfortable life in Hollywood, hopefully with a resting heart rate more often than not, is uh, your relationships. And so if you have good relationships and you know who to trust, who you can count on, you're probably okay. If you're new or naive, um, people may try to take advantage of you. And so I think that you just, it's all about honing your instincts. You know, it is, uh, it's a tricky business and it's a business that's changing very rapidly as we can see, you know, with the streaming businesses. And, you know, if you'd said 10 years ago that linear or cable, you know, would be behind to streaming, everyone would have thought you were nuts, but here we are. So I I think it's just important to be able to know, you know, deal with people that you that you know like and trust and and everything will be fine uh but cutthroat is look th- there's certainly elements of that as there are in really any business and i know it makes a good kind of racy headline but ultimately these days i think things are getting a little more on an even keel you know the the events of the last many years with harvey and me too and hr and everything else is i think it just gets you know harder and harder to do those things and that's a good thing so i i think in a way this business which remember is full of very creative dynamic artists you know and that's the that's what makes it different from a lot of other businesses so yes it's a business but ultimately it's a business that is driven by artists and and so it's just important to recognize that those kinds of dynamic personalities are sometimes going to attract people who you know may prey on their weakness or you know try and try and do something that isn't necessarily in their best interest. So I've been lucky. I've never really had any kind of trouble that way. And and it's good. I think as you develop your reputation in our business, that follows you. And um, you know, hopefully, you know, I don't have any of that to deal with. And hopefully, you don't either. <laughs> No, I live I live in my own in Bucks County and my little box every day, so I'm cool. <laughs> I do um, not well, hear the sound... Philly accent there, Jamie, at all. No, no, I don't have... <laughs> yeah, I've been, <laughs> only been there a few years. Everything that you've said over the course of today somewhat contradicts the concept of Hollywood being nothing but a cutthroat industry because being a good person, being a team player, being sympathetic, being so important in growing as, a, as whatever you are in this industry seems like the way to be to continue to work not just get the odd gig well it's 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 the way for me and who knows maybe it's my canadianness or <laughs> um whatever credit my parents i guess maybe but it, it's it's you know life is too short to be an asshole in my opinion and not much good has ever come out of that kind of behavior in my observation and experience so again you know some people whatever their parents taught them, um, you know, maybe it didn't sink in or maybe they didn't get the full story. But I, I just think that right now, certainly in our group um, and the people that I've been dealing with for the last many years, you know, I love most of them. I like the rest of them. There's very few that I 
hate or despise. And and those people, I you know, uh, I mean, look, if anyone has led me astray in the past, I've just you know taken care not to knock on their door again. You know, so it's just kind of as simple as that. And 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 you learn from every experience. But I think trying to surround yourself with with good people is is really critical. And trying to do right by them is also really important. So if you can if you can do that, you're you're probably going to be fine because uh, you'll attract good people and um, they'll want to work with you. Yeah. Well, I think you've pretty much answered this question already, but we'll wrap up here with any advice that you may have to someone wanting to become a movie producer or a TV producer. Um, I would say think twice <laughs> because it's not particularly easy. Look, what I tell anybody, whether it's acting, producing, directing, you know, do the thing that you love because even if you're falling down or failing every now and then, at least you're doing the thing that you want to do, as opposed to being half-assed happy doing something that you really, you know, couldn't care about. So with producing, I would say try and become a producer's assistant or a director's assistant because, um, you know, I started as a PA, but, but I, a production assistant for those who don't know, but I really tried to gravitate towards the producers and, and ask them a lot of questions. So Right now, if you want to be, you know, there's some school. I mean, certainly there's NYU and USC and there's some good film schools out there. Producing, I think, is something you learn from the ground up inside the business. So uh, try and get a good mentor, as I have had and and I've cherished a few of them, and take uh, from them, you know, what you can and, and, and then, you know, discard the stuff that you see doesn't work or that you don't agree with and then get a piece of material. If there's a book or or some piece of material or a play or something that you think would be good for an adaptation, try and get the rights and uh, try and develop it either with a writer or with a director, because ultimately people love material. They love content. They they are going to want to be a part of that. So if you can somehow find your way to a good piece of material or get with a director and make a short film, um, you know, that's a good calling card. They're not too hard to do. And now you've got something that a you've learned because you've made a little film. But you know, if it's a short and it's let's say three or four days, and you've got a big borrow and steal and get some favors and get some friends out and get them some pizza and beer or whatever, well, now you've got a calling card. You say, look, I've I've made a short, you know, or I've got a director relationship now or something else. But I think that those are the two things, the three things: assist a producer, get some material make a short are kind of my three things because now at least you're in the business and you're not just on the outside looking in, you know, not being exposed to the kinds of things that you need to be exposed to, to um, sort of build the skill set you need for this job. Love that. Well, that was fantastic. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and being so honest about your role and talking to us about the immersive Disney animation as well. And uh, yeah, thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me and good luck breaking out of that room. It looks pretty secure. (laughs) I'll do my best. Well, it's nice and padded at least if I go nuts. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening and special thanks, of course, to J. Miles Dale. This show was hosted by myself, Jamie Muffet, and produced by RPS Audio. Follow us on social media, Soundstage Insider on Instagram and at Soundstage In on Twitter. Check out our sister podcast, In the Envelope by Backstage, where we interview the biggest stars in film, TV and theatre. 
Have a great week and I'll see you again next time. See you soon. Bye-bye.